Joanne Vanicola is an Emmy Award actor and writer who's been working in film, television, and theater since they were eight years old. They've also been nominated for a Genie, a Gemini, and an Actor Award. Joanne is a longtime advocate for the LGBTQ community and is the chair of the first LGBTQ plus committee for the Actors Union ACTRA. She sits on the Sexual Assault Ad Hoc Committee at ACTRA for Women in Film and Television. Joanne's memoir, All We Knew But Couldn't Say, available from Dundurn Press, is in stores and wherever you get fine books now. So you can get it online, Amazon.ca, anywhere you buy books, you'll be able to find this. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to meet you. So we're going to go way back. We'll, we'll, We'll work our way into the book. I think because it's a memoir, these two sort of lines that I'd like to explore are going to intersect all the way through here. Uh, But you've been working since a very young age. And I'm always fascinated by children who become performers because I think that uh, there are reasons why kids are compelled to do all this. And I think your reason is one of two reasons that I can think of. One, uh, that it's a distraction from the chaos of your home life. That's kind of how I felt after reading the book. But tell me, why at age eight were you professionally acting and dancing and all that? It's so funny because as an eight-year-old, you don't, certainly don't think about, you know, professionalism. You just think of play Mm -hmm. and you just think of make-believe and escape and... I think that's part of it when you're a kid. You you do escape and you play and it becomes a part, it becomes the joy of being a child if you're in, an, in a home or, or living in an environment that's maybe not joyful. So when those places and spaces open up to you, it's like the world begins uh, and you realize that there are other ways of, of experiencing joy and human connections, actually, um, through things like the arts and, and acting. And so there's that. But there's also the fact that, you know, my mother, I think, was, was deeply wanted to be a, a dancer and an actor and, and, and to be that person. And, I, and she never had those opportunities as a young person. And I think she tried to make us or me mm-hmm. uh, fulfill that that dream that never that never was realized for her when you were a child even before stepping on stage did you use that escape daydreaming creating uh, uh, alternate worlds for yourself in your head as a way to protect yourself from parents and this is where the the story changes a little bit from parents who were emotionally and physically abusive yeah i did (laughs) i do think a lot of children do because that's you, that's the place of escape. If you're in a home where you're unhappy or hurt or terrified or uh, you, you just, and, and you can't get away, I mean, that's where you live. Um, and I think your mind or your imagination is the place of escape. And, and, and I think, thank goodness for, <laughs> for creativity yeah. and for the ability to do that because that's what makes, I think, a lot of great artists. Not that being a great artist means you have to have come from a, a broken home or, a, or an abusive home. It's just that I think that the power of imagination is, can save many people and, and, and also create um, beautiful careers or more well, beautiful. But <laughs> that's another story altogether. <laughs> However, <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. Yes, we'll, we'll get yes there. but it is that hope and that dream and the ability to express yourself in ways that you can't in everyday life. Mm-hmm. And so even making things up in your head is, you know, characters, people, love, family, all of those things, the ability to imagine 
um, a better life is, I think, what sustains a lot of a lot of young survival. People. Survival. Yeah, Bruce Springsteen has a quote that is essentially, you know, I don't know a lot of really well-adjusted people that are rock stars. Yeah, that's probably true yeah. for a lot of actors yeah, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that it has something to do with uh, finding a way also to connect with things emotionally and connect with yourself emotionally and understand those emotions that that makes you a good actor. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's interesting as I get older because I look back, I don't look back at stuff I've done, but I remember the the, the work that Mm -hmm. I did as a 20-something-year-old and I think, oh, God, I was bad. (laughs) But then I think, well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I was protecting myself from so many things and I had so many levels and barriers and layers and I couldn't quite access myself sometimes. And I think, oh, you know, it's interesting. And now as I get older, I'm like an open book in a lot of ways and I'm incredibly emotional. And I think, oh, now is a good time. Now I feel a bit more seasoned and I feel like, you know, it should be like opera acting, you know, because we get better, we get wiser, we get deeper sometimes. And Well, I think there is a certain freedom that comes with aging. And, you know, I'm older now and, and I have, I've let it go. I've let, what have you let go. <laughs> I've let go a lot of things. I mean, I've let go a lot of things. I cancer a number of years ago. And for me, that was like a hinge in my life where everything changed and it was bad, but I've come through on the other end of it. We always knock wood when we say that, but it changed my perspective on absolutely everything. And kind of now I don't care. I hear you. And, yeah. and congratulations, by Thank the you. way. I'm glad you're here. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, but, and I agree with you. And I think for me, uh, I hit that wall years ago. Yeah. Um, and I think it was the real, I think after, you know, my mother, it took a long time for me to process. We'll get to that, I'm sure. But, um, it took, it it just took being beaten down, I think, at a certain point to just go, I don't care anymore. And when I started to write the book, it, this sort of monster took over internally, not, not a bad monster, but a good one. It was (laughs) that sort of, I'm going to let this all go. And see what happens. And the catharsis monster. Yeah, that yeah. monster. Now, now it's not the same. But when yeah. I started to write it, I was like, oh, I got to get this out. I got to get this out. Well, <laughs> uh, let, let's talk about that. This is, by times, a harrowing read. Uh, as you go through it, the emotional and physical abuse that you suffered as a as a child, is it's hard reading. Yeah. And I think that is the success of the book, is that it made me want to put it down occasionally, but also then pick it back up and continue reading, because it's ultimately a story of survival. Correct. But you were prompted to write this, as I understand it, when your mother became ill, and you went to see her, and you hadn't seen her for a long time. And I was reading this book and then I heard, you know, all about the circumstance of this. And I thought, I don't know if I would have gone back. (laughs) And and so I wonder what what it means to go back because you're opening a door that you, at that moment you don't know whether you're going to be able to close again. It can, it can bring up some terrible things. So let's start there. Yeah. What, what made you go back? I had an internal, you know, desire, and it hadn't really been there until I learned about the cancer that she she was, you know, she was very ill, um, and I had made a. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to get into. I, I I sort of made a pact with myself and understood that I could probably experience nothing, or I could experience a wall. I could experience 
horrible pain again, or I could learn something from the exchange with her. And I also wanted, I know this sounds so weird, but I, I, I wanted to be a better person. The bigger person, maybe. Is that Maybe, but but also a better person for myself. Mm -hmm. Not better than her, better for myself, because I sort of had this ideology, and I was a very staunch, I have been a staunch feminist, and I'm very sort of like, no, I'm very, very, you know, people call me stubborn. Right. And they're right. Um, but when I believe something, I, I really push push myself yeah. and try to push others. And, and there's good and bad in that. But I push myself to also rise up to my own beliefs mm-hmm. and standards and ideologies, which I all often fall short. And so I keep pushing. Um, but I wanted to be a better person inside myself. And I thought, what what can I do to make an ending with this woman uh, better how can it improve my life right. and how does it make me a better person? And I kind of put some of the stuff aside from childhood because I had to in order to sit with her. Yeah, yeah, because the emotional abuse from your mother is is harrowing yeah, to it, read about. It, it, it's it's tough. And, and that's why I say I don't know that I would have gone back. And, and I find it fascinating yeah. that you did and that it spurred <laughs> the writing of this to, to go back and, and then, I don't know if it's reliving exactly, but it's certainly uh, creating, I, I always think that your your mind is like a series of rooms mm. and the, you have trauma in some of them and you have joy in some of them and you have, you know, these mm. rooms get, but eventually the rooms get filled up and you have to kind of figure out what you're going to move and, and it's like playing chess almost, sometimes mm. moving trauma and joy and whatever else from room to room. And, and by going back there, you're filling filling up that trauma room again. Yeah, and I think that was a really cool way to <laughs> describe it, actually. That was really good. You should put that on a book. <laughs> um, I think that that's really true. And uh, all the rooms were pretty full <laughs> when I would go to visit her. And, you know, there were moments where I, I, I literally had to escape that room with her because I was just... I just felt so much emotion and I didn't know what I was going to do with it. What was her response to to you being in the room with her? You know, she uh, she's a mist. She was a mystery in a lot of ways. Uh, she was hard to tell what was authentic and if there was true emotion. Uh, oftentimes, I think because she was a bit of a nar- she was a narcissist. It's really hard to gauge. You know, because it was all about her. There, there was never a moment that it was about a, one of her children. Right. It was always, you know, her horrible life and the things that her, the bad things her children did to her. And that was, that was hard to keep hearing. But I, I don't know why I kept going back. I just, I just kept thinking maybe before she dies, something's going to come out and some nugget, some information that I'm going to be able to make sense out of or, or reorder reality in my own life. Mm-hmm. Uh, with and eventually we did get there. It, it wasn't what I was looking for, um, but that's okay. I mean, I, it was still the it was still the story and the end of that journey that it was. And I, I did my very best to kind of bridge horrible realities that we had experienced. But it was an impossible thing to do with somebody who's a narcissist and somebody who lives in denial and doesn't step up to the plate. And so I gave her that opportunity to step up the plate many times, and she never did, and that's that's on her. You were acting when you were eight years old, and we were talking about that a little bit earlier in the first segment. Um, do you remember the first moment 
you know, the first time that people applauded or the first time that people said, wow, that was that was really something. And what kind of effect did that did it hit you like a lightning bolt? Yeah, I think, you know, I did a lot of theater as a kid. And, um, you know, of course, it was amateur theater as Mm -hmm. as children do. (laughs) But it wasn't the school plays. It was like, you know, proper theater school. And uh, we'd have, you know, the proper audience. And uh, I do remember feeling like all that hard work for, you know, studying and memorizing and rehearsing. And not that it was considered hard work. It was still play Mm -hmm. at that age. But but it was a lot of effort that went into those those plays and, and the rehearsals. And there was a lot of, you know, there were some hard drama coaches at that yeah. age. They, they were like the mean ones. Right. <laughs> like yeah. You were afraid of when you were a little kid. <laughs> so there was, you know, a little bit of terror there too. Um, but once, you know, you f- I finished a, a couple of, I had a, a number of leading roles when I was a young kid in, in, in the theater. And I, it was always a sense of accomplishment when I, when I did a good job and then people would clap and, it, you, you know, it felt like, oh, there is recognition for doing something good. And it, and it wasn't, it wasn't just about being an actor. It was about being a human being and people seeing you and recognizing you for something. Yeah. Uh, so that because, was lovely. Because that wasn't necessarily happening at home. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was certainly recognized at home, but it wasn't, certainly it wasn't healthy and it was very, you know, uh, uh, horrible really in, in many ways. So it, it was the, it was the safety. There was a safety oddly in, in being a young person who was performing because you, you did get praise and recognition and, and people treated you like, 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 um, like you were valuable. Right. And yeah. you were surrounded by a community yeah. at, 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 at a certain point, which was probably better than what was happening at home. Yeah, and it's not to say that every moment at home was horrible. I mean, it, right. it wasn't. I mean, certainly a lot of those moments are in the book. Yeah. Um, you know, I had I had some great fun with my sibs and, you know, but I didn't write about those things in the book because that wasn't really the point of the book. So, um, but, but definitely my favorite place to be was either dancing or acting or outside of my world. Yeah. And the physical and, and mental abuse, uh, I mean, I don't know how much we really want to detail it here, <laughs> right. but but it, it, it's, a, it's what you feel comfortable with. We can talk about whatever you like, but it's what you feel comfortable with. Sure. It's in the book. Um, for me, uh, you know, as an eight-year-old experiencing all that and, and even younger, um, it just seems unconscionable. It seems to me that it is... A, 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 a physical abuse of children makes my skin crawl. Yeah, it makes my skin crawl too. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a fierce advocate around uh, child abuse issues, and you know, it's. Uh, I mean, I, I've been focusing lately on LGBTQ issues mm-hmm. and women's issues, but um, I just one of those things that uh, make me crazy when I when I learn about children suffering and children being abused, even children in cages. Yeah, I mean, yeah. all of that stuff yeah. just it drives me nuts. And I think, why as a culture are we not? helping these children en masse? Why are we not protesting in the streets? And then I think, well, most abuse happens in private and behind closed doors. Did anyone know? I mean, was it something that you're, I mean, there were outside some, you had some trouble with teachers and things as well, doing not great things, but was there any, was there anyone outside? 
I no, I don't think so. And, and you know, it's interesting because I recently had a conversation with a family member who said, "Yeah, but you know, it was Italian, and Italians hit their kids." And I'm think, right. I said, "Do you mean child abuse?" Yeah. Because let's get really clear about what you're saying. <laughs> so, yeah. um, uh, but that's you know, it's not cultural, and you know, it doesn't matter if you're Italian or Spanish or black or whatever you are. It doesn't give you the right to beat your children. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just you know, culture and race have nothing to do with how we raise human beings, right? Uh, I mean, it, it's filtered by many things that have to do with probably racism and, uh, you know, a lot of other issues. But, um, and a person's experience, you know, if, if, a, if an adult was also abused in their home, like, we, you know, there's a lot of that. Absolutely. And I think that it is, uh, abuse is systemic and, and generational often. Um, do we know about your parents? I I don't know if my father was abused, but I I think he was a unique. He he was definitely the more violent or the most violent out of his uh, life. And I and I learned from some cousins recently that wow, well, our father never did that. And I was just like, oh okay, but that's you know that's stuff that I learn right, and and I understand. And I I think my father was a is a, was a bit psychopathic. I mean, he's still alive and he's quite old now, but. Um, he just had no regard, no empathy, no, and he didn't care. He would just kill an animal, kill, you know, beat it the heck out of a kid. It just didn't matter. It's just who he was. You're eight years old. I'm flip-flopping back and forth. You're eight years old. You're performing. Uh, shortly after that, at, you know, six years later, you're moving to Toronto yeah. to act. You're from Montreal. You're moving to Toronto uh, to act. You... I, I pictured, as I'm reading about this, a child, still 14 years old, uh, coming here. Describe the move because yeah. uh, it was uh, rough. I mean, you didn't really know how to do things and, no. and sort of look after yourself. Right? I didn't know anything. I mean, I was literally a kid. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, even the most mundane tasks of life, I was like, huh? I'm like, okay, yeah, okay, do the laundry, do the laundry. Uh, I I didn't even think about going to a dentist or doctor or anything that had to do with self-care because a lot of that stuff actually didn't really happen growing up either. So I don't remember really going to family doctors or even going to the dentist. I don't remember ever going to the dentist. Uh, Maybe I had a cavity at some point, but that's about it. Yeah. So any of those life things were just unknown to me. Even cooking, I was a horrible cook, so I just didn't even bother. And then we know how that went. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you win an Emmy from Maggie's Secret, uh, playing a 15-year-old who comes to grip with the fact that both of your parents have a drinking problem. <laughs> and do you think that there was some, you know, life imitating art or art imitating life there? Oh, absolutely. And and neither of my parents drank. Yeah. But, you know, the you know, the parents in Maggie's Secret were abusive. Mm-hmm. You know, the father was a pedophile and the mom was a drunk. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like, oh, yeah, I can play this part. <laughs> 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 so I just, yeah, I used every bit of my own, you know, story. I created this massive backstory and I just let myself go as a kid, you know, as a, yeah. young, as a young person. I was quite young when I played that part. Um, and... Uh, I had a great, you know, friend in Al Waxman at the time. He directed the film. He yeah. directed it, and he was really good. Was he? Yeah, I, I yeah. only met him once, but I, I knew him as the King of Kensington and yeah. such a Canadian sort of icon. But when you look at him, that's what I saw. But there was layers to that guy. Oh, totally. I mean, if if you knew him, 
the human being, mm-hmm. uh, you got a whole other man, right? You get you got the inside guy, and yeah. uh, he was larger than life. You know, I just remember him at one moment. I, you know, there was a, a particularly difficult moment where you know the dad is trying to kiss the daughter, and uh, you know, it's not not a great film moment, but but uh, you know, it's the story. Yeah. Uh, and Al came up to me after one of the takes, and he said, he whispered in my ear, "I don't believe you." Wow. And that was all he said. That's all he had to say. And I was like, oh, boom, right? And yeah. then I was like, okay. And something clicks in. And something clicked in. And, and that's that's how Al was. Yeah. He, you know, he was just really supportive and, and he would well, just say the right thing. And himself, right? I guess actor that's, himself. I guess that's, you know, actors know how to talk to other actors. Yeah, yeah. And also he was really supportive of me. I mean, there were very few people that had my back. And I, I think Al Waxman always did. I just didn't recognize it as a young person. Right. And I heard a story recently that he, he would discipline his kids, apparently, by bringing up my name. You want to see who works hard? You worrying about shoveling the snow? Look at this girl. Really? Yes. So I learned that story wow. recently by uh, by a friend, and I was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Things I didn't know, right? <laughs> well, and you were working hard. I mean, you're working hard both uh, professionally but also on yourself personally yeah. as well. Um, there was, as we mentioned earlier, anorexia, drugs, alcohol. Talk about that a little bit and, and how you overcame those those hurdles. Well, did I? No. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, you know, God, it was insane because I think when you're a young, well, it could be a boy too, but when you're a young girl and everybody picks at your body all the time and, and you know, tells you you're getting fat or, you know, you're not feminine enough or any of the things that we do to little girls, all that stuff is just like right to the heart, little arrows right to the heart. And, you know, it, it just cuts them down. I mean, that is what bullying is and it's cultural it's societal it comes from adults it comes from industry and what we do to children in our industry is just unconscionable really just as bad as child abuse um and so all of those horrible negative lessons uh, were ingrained and uh so by the time i was living alone not only did i not know how to cook but i was like eh forget it i'm not gonna eat who's gonna eat yeah. what food food what for <laughs> So I thought, power of imagination. I've always used my imagination. I'll pretend I'm eating. (laughs) So I used to pretend I was eating meals when I wasn't. And and that is the I guess it's the power of imagination or or delusion or something, <laughs> Maybe right? Maybe delusion. Yeah. I, I think deluded. <laughs> yeah. Probably, obviously, uh, reeling from trauma from childhood, mm-hmm. and and certainly as a teenager, not capable of understanding what I was living with. So I was just surviving, which is what you do when you're a kid, right? You just survive. Um, but I did a lot of bad things to myself, certainly. I guess that's how you deal with it. Yeah. That's how you deal with it. You, you, you've been abused. And so then you turn into an abuser, either of other people or yourself. Yeah, definitely. You know, girls and women tend to abuse themselves a lot. Self-inflict. Self-inflict, self-harm, whether it's actual cutting or uh, something like an eating disorder, uh, which, you know, is a whole other thing, by the way. It's sort of, you know, the thing that happens in the brain around eating disorders is really hard to describe. I try to describe what that impact is. Well, it's hard, I I think, from what I understand and and have read, you look in the mirror and you don't see skin and bones. Mm -mm. You see you know, something that can be improved on. Yeah. 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 What I saw was fat. And, you know, in the head, what I believed was that fat was bad because that's what I was taught. Uh, So, you know, I didn't understand that my skin was literally just skin. Mm -hmm. Because if you pinch your skin, it it bunches. But then I would think, oh, that's that's fat. 
So it, it was just horrific what was going on in my head. Like there was no making sense anymore because the wires weren't connecting and I was deprived of nutrition. And I was a teenager, so I wasn't growing. Right. Uh, so there were a lot of problems, but there weren't there wasn't anyone to help me <laughs> or take care of me, right? Or or, you know, help me get through that because it was I was on my own. Yeah. And people tried, but when you're living alone as a, a teenager, you know, people can't impose anything on you, mm-hmm. right? So certainly the the governments or the social service systems probably should have done something, but, you know, nobody knew. Yeah, nobody knew. And, and you know, you probably weren't complaining. You weren't saying anything. And so you're not on the list of the 5,000 other people that need help. So Absolutely. I was just a kid on my own in the world. Nobody, and making money. And making money. And yeah. Not a lot, but yeah. making money. Yeah. Uh, and then snorting it. <laughs> <laughs> I never saved it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there was a lot of drugs and alcohol consumption as well. And, of course, I was working with adults a lot of the yeah. time. And, wow, but they, they did a lot of drugs and drinking in yeah. back in the day, right? Yeah. So it was just acceptable uh, at Absolutely. the time. Absolutely. I, I heard a story uh, from a Canadian director who uh, told me it was in the 1980s, or 80s, early 90s. Yeah. And uh, he was making a film, and he like they, he'd roll, uh, he'd call action, and like the cameraman would be gone, or or the the sound person would disappear. There just somebody wasn't where they were supposed to be, and uh, he'd say, "Where's Where's Jim?" And Jim's off snorting cocaine, uh, sir. <laughs> we'll see if we can find him. So they and they'd go way off set to do their drugs, right. and so he built a little drug shack. On set, so that he could know where everybody was. Okay, that's funny. <laughs> that's like really messed up and funny all at the same time. Yeah, but it's, I, I think it's a story of an era. It really you know? is, and it was it was a story of an era. And, and most adults I knew were were drugging or drinking, and and not that anybody thought it was bad or that it was destructive or that it was actually unacceptable. It was just what people did. Yeah. Um, like Mad Men, I suppose. Well, I kind yeah, absolutely. And I kind of remember those days when you'd meet somebody and they would have been up for two days and you'd be like, man, you should get some sleep. And then we'd laugh, <laughs> we'd laugh, you know, not thinking like you're probably going to go into drug psychosis soon if you yeah. don't get some sleep. Or you're going to have a heart attack. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you're you're working. You're saying you're snorting all your money away and that kind of thing. But you are working, and you're working on a on a highly won an Emmy award. You're working with Denis Arcan. Eventually, yeah. you know, doing that. You're working. And so, was there a satisfaction that came from the work that overrode the the compulsion to do self harm? Oh yeah, I think. Um you know, I don't know if it was the work itself that overrode the compulsion. I, I think it was understanding that I would get into trouble physically. Like, you know, I, you know, for example, I did too much cocaine one night and I, I couldn't get off the floor. I was like, you know, I was probably close to ODing or something. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, I can't do this again. So I had an internal <clears throat> sense of knowing yeah. and I would push the envelope and then hit that wall and then go, oh, Reel it back. And then when I would get some work, I would be really serious about that job. And I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't mess up on that. I wasn't a young person who did a lot of drugs at work. I wasn't that person. The adults (laughs) around me were doing. But I wasn't doing that on set. So I was very focused and very, um, yeah, I I did my job because it it was everything to me at that age. Like that, that was my life. That was my career. That was where I excelled in the world. And that's where people gave me praise in the world. So that had been instilled in my head, but it also was the thing that hurt me 
in the end as well. And the work was great. The people were fantastic. But there was also misogyny and homophobia. And those are the things that eventually I could not ignore. In that time, it was a much different time, I think. I don't think it's completely gone away, the homophobia and all that. But the the 80s, early 90s, into that was a much different time. We're uh-huh. talking about uh, homophobia being acceptable, I think. We're talking about yeah. a community being ravished by AIDS. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we're talking about a, you know a, a troubling and difficult time. And you were smack dab in the middle of it. Yes, correct. And I... I think, um, you know, there are two, there are separate worlds, right? There's my acting career and that universe, which is its own world. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the political climate and what's happening on the ground in the city and in the country with respect to LGBTQ rights. And uh, I mean, at that time, you know, queer people couldn't couldn't only just marry, but there was legislation that would block uh, certain bills so that LGBTQ people couldn't uh, have certain rights or basic rights, including spousal rights or, or employment benefits or any or go, of those things. Yeah, going to the hospital if your lover was in the hospital. Terrible. You weren't a f- family member, so you didn't get in to see, even though you may have been together for 25 years. Yeah, and that happened to a friend of mine who lost her partner who uh, died. Um, and she couldn't get in. And I just thought, how, how, oh my God, how horrible to do that to a human being. But that's what the culture did to LGBTQ people. And in terms of the industry, I mean, we were barely moving the pendulum with respect to um, queer stories and uh, ending homophobia, barely. Well, Street Legal tried to change that a little bit last year. Yeah. And with a, a character that you were... Uh, cast in a non-binary role in in that, and six episodes in the show. The show didn't go past that, uh, but disappointing, perhaps. But you know, I- I- at least I don't know. Should we say at least there was a there, there was, was a an moment. attempt? Yeah, <clears throat> you know, I think like I was sad about that because. Um, the the showrunner and the writers were really excited about developing the, the character. Like that the next season for, this, was for the next be, season, yeah. that would have been like the season where Sam, you know, developed as a character, and we we probably would have infused a lot of my stuff into that to give it sort of richness and authenticity and, mm-hmm. and story. Uh, and so I was really sad when it was canceled because it meant I didn't get to explore that non-binary character on TV. And that really hurt because I was so excited about that opportunity and, and to do something culturally that would have mattered for people. right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of the times when I do things, that's what I think of now because uh, I'm older and I don't care. <laughs> it's that thing about not caring. right? You want to do something that's impactful and everything you do matters you know, within time. right? How Do I want to spend three months doing that in my life? Yeah. Well, I, I think so. I, you know, uh, I mentioned earlier about having cancer. I wrote uh, a long piece about uh, having cancer that that was going to be a book, and then I just couldn't finish it. I just couldn't spend another year of my life writing about this. And so I, I took what I had, it was about 30,000, 40,000 words, about half a book maybe, and, uh, and I put it online at ctvnews.ca. And it's been really shocking to me the impact that that has had, the reach that it had. Probably more people read it there than would have read it had I written a book uh, about it. But people come up to me daily on the street and say, I read that and your attitude helped me work through things. Uh, What's the response being from your book, uh, All We Knew But Couldn't Say, from people that are survivors of 
emotional and physical abuse or uh, perhaps fans of street legal who come to you and say, you know, you are doing good work out there in the world for yeah. us. I think that's the best part of, of writing a book like this because even on Goodreads, you know, there's a sense of some of those really long um, pieces that people write about uh, having somebody who can write about, uh, you know, violence and child abuse and what the culture is like and, you know, that there's a, a connection to that and it's it's something that allows for other people to see themselves in. And um, to me, that matters. That's the most important thing, uh, that if you can help someone through your own journey, uh what better what better thing in the world uh, really yeah, yeah i think so and 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 it will help people yeah and i i there's I, a sense of being alone i think that people have when stuff like this happens in your life whether it's illness or physical abuse or whatever it is uh, and to know that it's a shared experience i think is important yeah i don't think there are enough spaces of community let's say like there aren't places where people and I don't mean group therapy, I mean yeah. where people really connect about life. And I think we're so conditioned to not have real conversations. We talk about movies, we talk about it's shows. It's so hot out. Yeah. yeah, it's so hot out, it's so cold out, I hate this, I hate the winter. I mean, there's just like, those yeah. are the things that we talk about, but that internal stuff, that the stuff of history and what it's like to be afraid at night if you're if you're ill or alone or or dealing with symptoms or dealing with flashbacks. I mean, all of those things are things we don't talk about. There's a sort of this taboo around honest conversation. And I think that's where we do ourselves a disservice as human beings, because we could we could do so much more culturally if we actually just break down those barriers and really talk. And I think we see that when we look in, at, at, in the, at the culture and in institutions and in government and all of those things, right? If we really break down barriers, uh, I think we could change the way we live in the world just, uh, you know, by having real conversations instead of like moments where we just attack or defend or respond or even just pretend, right? And be joyful or, you know, so I, I just think it's about getting real and it's about making a difference and using our time wisely while we're here. I'm in conversation with Joanne Vanicola. The book is called All We Knew But Couldn't Say. I know when I mentioned that I had been writing this, the, the cancer, what I eventually, it was sort of a cancer diary, and I had to put it aside. And I, I was, my, my last bit of chemo was five years ago, and I was writing it while I was doing that. And then I'd go back a year later. I thought, well, I could write about this now. Couldn't do it then. I put it aside second year, third year, fourth year. Finally, by the fifth year, I thought I, 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 I want to do something with it, but I do not want to spend a year writing this. When you jump back into a project like this, which is so personal and it must have been difficult, you mentioned flashbacks earlier. You mentioned, I mean, there must be something every now and again that hits you like a, like a, like a freight train. Uh, and it, do you, well, I mean, I, I think I know the answer to this. I guess it's worth it. But, <laughs> Which part? Well, just the, the tr reliving this. Or do you relive it? Are you able to stand aside from it a little bit maybe and say, I'm telling – it happens to be my story, but I'm now just telling it as a story. Yeah, I think both, actually. Yeah. I think it depends, you know, what kind of a day you're having, yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is just very real, right? Yeah. Like if, you, if you're if you sad because it's a you know particular marker or a holiday or a birthday or, you know, whatever it is. Like sometimes those things – 
come at you. And sometimes it doesn't even have to be a holiday or a marker. Sometimes it's just a thought or a moment or mm-hmm. you, see, you see somebody on the street and they remind you of something. But I think that's, that's just life, whether it's something horribly hard that happened in our lives or something beautiful and joyful. I think that's just the way our minds work. So, I mean, I would be lying if I said I never had, you know, any emotional, you know, reaction. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm in a really good place emotionally. Um, and I feel like I'm able to distance myself and the writing itself was very, very difficult, mm-hmm. but it happened over years. So I kind of developed this thick right. skin in the process yep. and I got it out. And then when all that was done, I was able to move forward in a, in a more professional way, let's say in terms of, okay, now what do I do to get this book out right. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. and put on my marketing brain, right? How do I get this out? And, you know, all of those things that happened. So you know, I think it's a bit of everything, but but mostly I hope it, it becomes like a not not just a tool to help people, but also like a good read. <laughs> it is a good read. And and I, again, we were talking about goodreads.com. You know, th- these are people, random people in the world who have read it. And I always sort of look for that. Whenever I've written a book, I always look to see what people are saying on that site in particular, because they can be brutally honest over there, but uh, you've done well over there. Yeah, I was so grateful. <laughs> you know, it's still, it's still Sometimes early in the book. Sometimes when it says read more, you click on the read yes. more, you're like, you're afraid to. I know, I know. You know. And everybody told me, don't do it, don't do it. And I'm like, are you kidding? Of course I'm going to go look. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, what? No, don't say it. Wait till we waste your breath. But, um, but yeah, no, I've been so far pretty lucky with that. Phew. Yeah. Where do you keep your Emmy award? <laughs> <laughs> Poor thing. It needs a little help. It's sort of lost its color. It's got a couple of dents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just on top of a bookshelf. Yeah, it's moved around a little it's bit. Moved probably a lot. Yeah. I mean, when I was young, I didn't even know what I had. I was just like, I used it as a doorstopper at one point. <laughs> so, somebody was really stone dropped it one day. Well, I mean, you know, it's been through a lot. That Emmy. Well, that, yeah, it's sort of a, a maybe a chronicle of your life in a lot of ways of what's happened from then to now. Yeah, yeah. and I put a little rainbow ring on her on her wing, really? so she's got. <laughs> that now too. <laughs> <laughs> now we've just got a minute left. You mentioned that you were writing another book. Yes, I'm working on a, a YA about queer homeless youth. Um, so I've just been starting that journey. So uh, yeah, I don't know where it's going to go. And, and honestly, it's hard to find time to just think mm-hmm. clearly and write. Um, but I'm, I'm grateful to be able to get this book out and, and do things like Word on the Street in September. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm going to a bunch of bookstores between now and October and a few events. So uh, so all that effort, you know, it takes brain cells. And Absolutely time. it does. Uh, because, the, the, you know, for me, the writing of the book and the rewriting of the book, uh, I always thought when my first one came out was going to be the hard part. And it's, it, it is. But then it's the stuff that comes afterwards because it's it's like a baby. It's in the world now and you yeah. want to nurture it. And yeah, make so sure my, that... my baby's six weeks old and yeah. I'm like, oh my goodness, how do I keep feeding my baby? <laughs> so, you know, I'm grateful for moments like this because I get to speak about it. Right? Right. So, well, what a pleasure to speak to you. Uh, it's a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. I've been in conversation with Joanne Vanicola. The book is called All We Knew But Couldn't Say. It's available everywhere that you buy fine books. Uh, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Thank you for sharing sharing your stories as well. Thanks to everyone out there for listening and thanks to Robert on the board. We'll talk again next week.